Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today, we'll speak with Dr. William Paul, founding editor of the Annual Review of Immunology. Dr. Paul has been at the National Institutes of Health since 1968 and serves as chief of the Laboratory of Immunology at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He has received numerous honors and awards for his work on cytokine biology, regulatory T-cells, and innate immunity. He also recently won the Max Delbruck Medal for his work on interleukin-4. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak with you. So you've been at the NIH now for more than 40 years. I've heard that you've had the same office this whole time. Is that true? Almost true. I've had the same office since July 1st, 1970. So for two years, I had a different office. What is the oldest thing in your office? The oldest thing in my office, uh, I got rid of most of the really old stuff four or five years ago when I renovated the, the place. So probably here, there's no really old things. I've got some pictures and stuff, but the furniture is actually remarkably new. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. So tell me, how did you first become interested in immunology? Well, that's an interesting story. I think I dated back to um, reading, when I was in college, reading a slender volume of uh, articles by a scientist named Michael Heidelberger. Uh, Heidelberger had been the father of quantitative immunochemistry in the world and had described how antibodies interacted with antigens. And while at the time I knew almost nothing about immunology other than that, you know, we could make vaccines, I just found the description of the capacity of antibodies to interact so specifically and so remarkably with antigens terribly fascinating. And I think it was that, uh, that you know, reading, I think it was on a streetcar actually, that really sort of got me really excited about the idea that the immune system would be an important and terribly interesting thing to study. And thinking back a little bit past then, what was the instance when you knew this was something you could do as your life's work? Well, again, I was good, had the good fortune to uh, do my military service at the National Institutes of Health. There was, uh, in the era when I was uh, a young physician, there was a physician's draft in the U.S., and virtually every um, young physician uh, would be drafted or was likely to be drafted. And one possibility, if you were fortunate enough to get it, was to get a research position here at NIH. And I got such a position as what was called a clinical associate in the National Cancer Institute. Uh, There I had uh, two responsibilities. I had clinical responsibilities. I had to care for patients. And that was a remarkably interesting opportunity because we had at the time every woman in the United States who had a disease known as choriocarcinoma, which is a malignancy of the placenta. Well, what was so remarkable that the first choriocarcinoma was the first metastatic cancer that could be cured by drugs. Uh, The treatment for that was introduced by a man named Roy Hertz, who was the head of the laboratory in which I worked. And at the time, it was still a new and revolutionary. And so everyone in the U.S. who had the disease came to us. And fortunately, we were able to send 70% of these women home cured. So that was a great experience. At the same time, uh, my research efforts there uh, involved working on uh, radioimmunoassays. 
which was a new field, just really getting going, had been I initiated by Solomon Burson and Rosalind Yalu just a few years earlier, uh, for which uh, Rosalind Yalu won a Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, Saul Burson died before the prize was given. Um, and we worked, uh, my colleagues and I, and I was, of course, a junior member of the team, worked to develop a radioimmunoassay for a thyroid-stimulating hormone. So that was a great experience. It really got me excited. I did other work on sort of the antigenic aspects of hormones, and that led me to the view that I really should work in immunology rather than in endocrinology, and it led me to the decision that I should do it and indeed that there was a real possibility that I could do it. Now, you've said that the, the field of immunology has changed dramatically since those early days. Can you talk about some of those changes? Well, you know, we have a remarkable set of tools available today. They, of course, are available to scientists in all fields of uh, science, not just to immunologists, of course. But when I entered immunology, uh, we knew that lymphocytes were the carriers of immunological information. And then we knew a fair, f modest amount about antibody structure, um, and not a whole lot more. We didn't know that there were T cells and B cells. We certainly didn't know that there were subsets of T cells. We really didn't understand the notion of antigen presentation. The whole field of regulation was unknown. The study of innate immunity had hardly begun. So all the great themes that we work on and think about today were not yet envisaged. The great, the great problem that excited us at the time and many others was the mechanisms of or the nature of antigen recognition, how it was that the cells of the immune system could recognize and respond to antigens. What are scientists in the field thinking about now related to that? Well, so the great interest in the field now, while antigen recognition is by no means a finished subject, we understand the great principles rather well. Uh, and so that field, while still an interesting one, has probably passed from the dominant role it had many years ago. Today, the great interests revolve around what you might call the regulation and homeostasis of the immune response. That is, what makes it tick? Uh, what are the components of the response? What activates them? How are they regulated? How do they mediate their functions? How do they protect us against uh, microbial pathogens? How do we prevent autoimmune diseases from occurring? So I would say you might uh, say the current dominant theme of contemporary immunology is immunoregulation, whereas the, contemporary, the dominant theme of immunology when I entered the field would have been antigen recognition. Let's dig into a little bit of, uh, of the specifics of your field. Can you tell me briefly the main difference between the adaptive immune system and the innate immune system? Certainly. So higher uh, vertebrates have a system in which they make specific responses to distinct uh, foreign structures. And that system is based on a remarkable diversification of lymphocytes, so that lymphocytes, uh, who are the carriers of immunological information, l differ from one another in that each naive lymphocyte, or virtually every naive lymphocyte, has a different cell surface receptor, allowing it to respond to a distinct set of antigenic structures. An immune response involves, therefore, the recognition by, or rather the selection, 
of a lymphocyte with a receptor that is cognate to or complementary to the introduced antigen. That interaction leads to a massive expansion of those cells, and at the same time, their differentiation into cells that can carry out effective functions of lymphocytes. <clears throat> Once they have mediated their function, which is usually to eliminate the pathogen, these cells then contract in number. They die back and perhaps fall back by 10 to about 10% of the peak they had reached, but then establish themselves as memory cells, which can be evoked again on a reintroduction, reintroduction of the pathogen. So the key of adaptive immunity is that the response is specifically tailored to the introduced antigen, and the antigenic history of the individual really matters. If you've been infected with influenza, uh, you will be resistant to the same strain of influenza if it's reintroduced, but you'll be susceptible to a new strain that you have never seen before. Innate immunity is based on a principle that pathogens have certain cell surface molecules that are essential to their function. And the innate system has receptors that recognize those pathogens. But rather than being distributed one receptor per one cell, as they are in the adaptive system, every cell, or virtually every cell of a certain type in the innate system, has all of the receptors that are essential for the recognition of the full range of uh, foreign, or I shouldn't say foreign, of, um, uh, uh, of pathogenic agents. So the innate system calls forth a massive response uh, when a foreign agent that it recognizes is introduced, but the response um, is not one in which specific individual cells that are distinct from one another are called forth, but the whole system responds. <coughs> and the, the system, furthermore, returns to its resting state when the pathogen is gone, and it doesn't have memory of a specific pathogen, so that in contrast to the adaptive system, which has immunological memory, the innate system lacks that property. Now, my understanding is that the adaptive immune system has been much more well-known historically and that the innate immune system is only now more recently being paid attention to. Is that, is that true, and why is that? That's not strictly correct. So from the very uh, dawn of modern immunology, modern immunology can usually is usually dated to Louis Pasteur's recognition that immunizing uh, animals with um, attenuated microorganisms created a state of specific immunity. Shortly thereafter, two schools of interest developed, one led by uh, Eli Mechnikoff, who was interested in the phagocytic mechanisms that initially in invertebrates as well as vertebrates, and which is today the innate system. And the other led largely by Paul Ehrlich, who was interested in understanding how specific immune responses were developed. And indeed, uh, they shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, I believe, in 1909, recognizing that they were each studying the two great themes of what we would call contemporary immunology. But it is also true that for many years, immunologists were largely concerned with understanding the problems, the great problems of antigen recognition, the remarkable 
kinds of molecular and cellular events occurring. And while they knew the innate system was important, they didn't really grapple with it in a direct and specific manner other than trying to make what were called adjuvants without truly understanding how they worked. So it remained to a proposal in, I guess, in the 80s by Charles Janeway, Jr., that would have reinvigorated this system. He made a very specific set of predictions about the property that the innate system would have, and most particularly, how the innate system would use those properties to guide adaptive immunity. And that led to, in a sense, a reinvigoration uh, of interest. And then, um, somewhat later, when Jules Hoffman in France discovered that Drosophila had an innate system based on a molecule known as toll, it became possible to search for molecules in mammals that would have a similar function. So that trans transformed the field from a theoretical discussion of possibilities to the ability to work with real molecules and real cells, and that led to this great explosion of interest in innate immunity, which so dominates our contemporary uh, study of immunological science. So tell me, what is going on today that's, that's really exciting to you? Well, there are many areas that I think are of enormous uh, interest and excitement. Uh, many of them, of course, in my own interest, are still rooted most uh, definitely in the adaptive immune system. Uh, one of the great uh, sets of interests are how uh, lymphocytes, particularly CD4 T cells, mediate their variety of effector functions. And in particular, we have learned that they do so by a process of differentiation in which a naive CD4 T cell acquires the capacity to develop into one of a whole series of distinct uh, sets of cells, often referred to as Th1, Th2, Th17 cells, and indeed there may be more. <clears throat> we are, have very much reached a, a quite a detailed understanding of the mechanisms through which they undertake this differentiation. We're beginning to learn a good bit about the possibility of their plasticity, their ability to convert from one cell of one type to another, how they mediate their protective functions. For example, we know the Th1 cells are of critical importance against infection with intracellular pathogens, including viruses, that Th2 cells are particularly good in protection against certain parasites such as helminths and other extracellular infections. Th17 cells are critical in protection against extracellular bacterial infections. And so <clears throat> we're beginning to learn or envisage the pop possibility of tailor-made vaccines in which we not only induce a response uh, to something that will give us protection, but induce that response so that it is optimally protective, so we could envisage a whole new generation of or new formulations of vaccines which would be much more likely to provide protective uh, protection to uh, individuals who receive them as, as one aspect of that work. Now, Taylor, you say tailor-made vaccines. Tailor-made for whom? How would that work? Well, the notion is the one thing you want is to make an immune response against the pathogen that will protect you when, you're, uh, when you encounter the pathogen. So what we have studied all of these years is how to make a response. 
uh, we try to find the antigens that the pathogen has that will be good at evoking an immune response. But the flip side of that is we also want to make an immune response that will protect us. Uh, if you're infected with an extracellular bacteria, what you really want is a Th17 response. If your vaccine were to emphasize, a, let us say, a Th2 response, it might be of relatively little protective value. So you would like not only to make a response that is specific for the uh, pathogen that's going to invade, but one that is also optimally protective. And I think we're beginning to learn of all of these differences and of the strategies that we might employ to develop optimally protective vaccines. Is the interest in studying the immune system confined to its capacity to protect us against infectious agents and develop new classes of vaccines? Well, certainly that is, you know, always been the critical driving force. But now we have learned that the immune system can also be an important, a very critical component of human disease. We've recognized for a long time that when the immune response is uncontrolled, it can lead to the development of what is often referred to as autoimmunity, and there are indeed a large number of autoimmune disorders. Of those, the best known are type 1 diabetes, uh, multiple scler sclerosis, uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. But now we recognize there are a whole set of new diseases which are based largely on an unregulated innate immune response, often referred to as autoinflammatory diseases. And there have been great advances here in which it is now possible to treat these disorders uh, quite effectively. But perhaps even more important than those is the recognition that diseases that we had no concept of before as having an important inflammatory component are in fact dominated by inflammatory responses. And of those, two of the most important are atherosclerotic heart disease, in which the principal cells that invade uh, the vessel wall and that determine whether or not a plaque will form or a clot will form are in fact macrophages. And those cells often are responding to stimuli that cause them to become uh, activated, that is to say, to be, uh, to be responding to the inflammatory system. And even very recently, there's been work strongly suggesting that type 2 diabetes, that is the type of diabetes not usually referred to or thought of as being due to an immune response, is in fact very much influenced by the inflammatory system. So the scope or the reach of the immune inflammatory system is one that uh, uh, reaches all, virtually all aspects of the functioning of, uh, of the human body. Sort of looking at the bigger picture, what made you or scientists in general think of applying these new discoveries to something like heart disease? How do you make those connections? Well, uh, so I must immediately say it isn't me. I was surely not the person who recognized the importance of the inflammatory system as it evoke, uh, applied to atherosclerotic heart disease. But it was scientists who became interested in those disorders, who began to study them as biological entities, and began to probe the nature of these responses in recognizing that it wasn't simply a problem of plumbing. You know, it, in the old days, it was imagined that uh, these diseases were simply a matter of plumbing and that you got a 
clog in the pipe, and that was why you got a, a heart attack. Today we recognize that these pipes, these, the, the vessels, are very dynamic, biologically important um, uh, entities, and that they certainly are subject to inflammatory responses. Now, there are a whole list of outstanding scientists, uh, some dating back to the 70s and before, who in fact had the, 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 the prescient notion that this would be true. But it's only in the last 10 years or so that we've recognized how important this is. And indeed, uh, as an epidemiological marker, one of the things that now people argue is an important predictor of whether or not you'll develop a myocardial infarction or heart disease is not only your level of uh, triglycerides or uh, lipoproteins, but also the degree of inflammation as marked by certain kinds of markers of inflammation so that physicians today will study not only uh, your level of high and low density lipoproteins, but they'll want to know what your level of C-reactive protein is. C-reactive protein is an important marker of inflammation, and we know when that protein level is high, you're at greater risk than when it is, at lo when it is low. What kind of intervention can be put in place to mediate a disease like heart disease? Well, of course, you know, we've had great success with the use of the statins to control uh, <coughs> the levels of, uh, uh, of lipids in the blood. The control of infl inflammation is more difficult. We still, I think, are at the early days of trying to understand interventions which will be critical to lower the levels of inflammation without, at the same time, uh, crippling our immune systems. I mean, we have to walk a narrow line here because, on the one hand, the protective value of the immune system is remarkable. Remember, if you are born without an adaptive immune system, you cannot survive. Uh, the terrible example of uh, this young man, who, this child, rather, who was born without an adaptive immune system, uh, you, most people remember the so-called bubble baby who could only live with inside a sterile environment. So immune systems, adaptive immunity is essential to our survival uh, in the microbial world we live in. An overabundance of adaptive and inflammatory immunity, of course, leads not only to specific autoimmunity, but to a wide range of inflammatory disorders. So clearly, there's got to be a titration of the degree of responsiveness. Over-responsiveness can be as disastrous as failing to respond. What discoveries hold the most promise for combating disease? Well, I think the concept of finding new ways to generate effective vaccines would, in my opinion, still be the single greatest contribution that immuno immunology can make. Uh, it should be recalled and, uh, that the, the study of the immune response or the immune system has probably contributed more to human well-being and health than any other medical intervention. <clears throat> After all, smallpox as a disease has been eliminated from the planet. Uh, I don't believe any other um, um, specialty of medicine can claim that they have eradicated the disease. You can certainly control a disease, you can prevent the disease, but the notion that a disease has been eliminated is really one that only immunologists or vaccinologists can claim. 
So we need, of course, to have new generations of vaccines to deal with unresolved problems. And of course, the great unresolved infectious problems uh, are <coughs> HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. And they are the great challenges uh, for anyone who wants to make an impact on human health. So having going a little further about what discoveries hold promise, our ability to uh, regulate adaptive in, innate immunity will certainly be important, both in the creation of new generation of vaccines, but also uh, in our ability to regulate the development of autoimmunity. And the flip side, as I said earlier, of protection against infections is the development of autoimmune disorders. And in the contemporary modern life, the importance of autoimmune disorders continues to grow. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we contend with type 1 diabetes, um, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, and a wide variety of other disorders, so-called inflammatory bowel diseases. <clears throat> it is interventions that can control or prevent these disorders, which I think are the great, the great uh, era, the great challenge and where I think progress is being made and will be made at a really quite remarkable rate in the near future. Now, let's talk a little bit uh, about the annual review of immunology. You were the first and have been the only editor of that series since its inception nearly 30 years ago. Can you talk about the founding of that series? Surely. So I can still recall that in uh, around 19, probably around 1980 or 1981, um, a group of us was asked to come to a, a meeting, I believe, at a Silomar, uh in California to discuss the possibility of a new review journal in immunology modeled on, of course, the great success of the annual review of biochemistry. And at the time, there was discussion about did we really need another review journal? There was already a a review known as Advances in Immunology, which existed, and there was another known as Transplantation Reviews. And so there was a lot of discussion uh, led by an editor of another series, not an immunologist. But in the end, everyone sort of agreed that the field was moving at such a pace that the need for cogent, uh, punchy reviews by experts in the field at a certain predictable you know, frequency was really important. And so as a whole, while we came uh, to Asilomar uncertain about whether a new review uh, journal was needed, by the end of the discussion, uh, virtually everyone around the table was persuaded that indeed this would be a good thing to do. And so uh, there was an agreement we would do it. And somehow, and I'm not quite sure how it was, uh, I drew the short straw and ended up being the editor with two really wonderful colleagues who were my associate editors, Henry Metzger and Gary Fathman, both of whom have now you know, left the, their roles as associate editors uh, some years ago. Why have you stayed? That's an interesting question. <laughs> um, I enjoy it. I think it uh, serves a very, I think the annual review serves an extremely valuable purpose. Um, you probably know that we've been at least very successful, at least as judged by citation rates. Now, some people may argue that 
that's not the very best way to judge uh, publications, but we have very few other quantitative measures. So if you use citation rates, the annual review of immunology has been incredibly successful. I think uh, in our very first year of publication, we were in the top five of all journals cited. And in virtually every year over the last 20, we have been in the top three of all journals, not just immunology journals, all journals or higher. And for seven or eight years, uh, we were first for, among all journals. So we certainly have been able uh, to uh, publish articles that people in the field felt had the value that they were willing to cite. And indeed, that's led to a situation in which authors regard uh, the annual review as a very good venue and want to publish. And in turn, when they want to publish, they usually want to write something really good. And that's been a positive feedback loop so that over the 28 years or 28 volumes we've published, virtually every one of them has had within it many, many reviews of lasting value. I, I was going to ask to what you attribute its success. Do you think it's tied to the sort of rising importance of the field of immunology itself? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the field has grown. I like to say I've been working in immunology for a long time. Um, when I started it, it was entering a revolutionary period. We all expected, you know, to have a period of revolutionary changes in the field, and then it would quiet down for a while, and then a new era uh, would start again. But I'm still waiting for the quieting down. Over the period of time I've been in immunology, this uh, almost 46 years, counting my postdoc, if you like, um, I haven't noticed any period with, uh, with slackened uh, expansionary tendencies. The field has just grown continuously its implications have become clearer and clearer. And I do think uh, that has contributed very much to the great interest uh, in accomplishments in the field, both by immunologists and by those outside the field. And inevitably, of course, that has helped in the readership of the Annual Review of Immunology and in the willingness of authors to cite the uh, reviews that appear in the publication. One last question back to a little more personal note. What keeps you motivated to continue your work? Well, I still think the field is terribly fascinating. It's biologically enormously interesting. Uh, I liken the immune system uh, almost to a population of free-living organisms within us because each lymphocyte is fundamentally different from every other lymphocyte. And in a human, there are probably 10 to the 11th different lymphocytes. And yet they have to, on the one hand, they're behaving like free-living organisms, but on the other hand, they have to be organized in such a manner as to have predictable responses to given, uh, to given insults. So understanding how this system is regulated uh, is a fascinating and I think extremely challenging problem, and uh, it's one that I, as they say, find uh, endlessly interesting. Fantastic. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I've had a wonderful experience talking with you. I hope it's of interest to some others. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.